Well, good morning. Good to be with you all. My name is Jonathan. I'm the senior pastor, and I do love you people. You people are great. Um, uh, what that handsome guy was talking about, I'm really excited uh, to get into this formation table thing. I know we're all busy, but I think there's this opportunity for us to grow together with the increased capacity of online and all this sort of stuff. Uh, this will be a chance for us just to every month check in with one another and find a way to press into what God is doing and how he wants to develop us. So join us, uh, mark it on your calendar, first week in September. Now today, 
Uh, we are just going to talk about this question. What is God doing here at Pulpit Rock Church? Where is he taking us? He's always doing something new. He's always up to something. What is he up to? And so the, this Sunday and next Sunday are going to be a little bit different sermons um, th- because we're just going to wrestle with that question together. And what I want to talk about today is some things that we deeply value here at Pulpit Rock that I think we need to continue to value and operate out of in the coming years, in the coming decade or so, uh, to make sure that we continue to be the sort of church that God wants us to be. And then next week, Susie's going to come back and she's going to talk about what does it mean to participate in a spiritual community like ours, and how do we press into that? But today I want to talk about some of the things that make us unique, some of the ways that we think about the world, and some of the things that we want to keep pressing into together. Let me start our conversation this morning with uh, like what is, is maybe a hard, maybe unfair question, but I think it's one that we need to ask. Why do people walk away from church. I don't mean like Pulpit Rock Church. I, like, I, like, I mean church in general. Why is it that sometimes some people are deeply connected to church, they're deeply connected to this Jesus thing, and then things happen in their life, and then at some point they say, I don't want that to be a part of my life anymore. And they walk away from it. Now, I've been leading in churches since I was 19 years old. That's when I first started working at a church. And, um, and I will tell you this, this question is a question that, that leaders in churches talk about behind closed doors quite a bit. There's a perception that this is happening too often. The statistics are bad in terms of church attendance. It's on the decline in this country. And every time someone surveys religious affiliation, an increasing number of people check the box for none. And so church leaders have been very focused on this question of why do people walk away from the church? And there's some hand-wringing. What is causing this? Who is to blame? How can we stop this? But this has not just been a professional question for me. This has been a question that personally has impacted me a bit. Um, Some of you know I went to a Christian high school. And so when you're in high school, most of your friends are in like your school. And when I graduated high school, uh, virtually all of my friends uh, were Christians who attended church. And if you ever experienced that, where like most of your friends are Christians and attend church, uh, you experience over time, especially as all of us went out into the world over the next 20 years, a few of those folks said, I don't want this as a part of my life anymore. And some drifted away, but some consciously looked at the Christian thing, the church thing, and said, that's not for me, and they walked away. And so for me, this has been both a professional question, but also a personal question, and I suspect you've probably had that experience too of someone in your life who says, it's no longer for me. You might have even been tempted to say that yourself. Why does that happen? I have a theory based on my experience, um, and I want to share it with you, but first let me point this out. I want to share with you what I don't think is happening. Um, based on my experience, I have not observed anyone who walked away from the faith because of the allure of the sinful world or intellectual challenges to Jesus in the Bible. I've not observed that. It's true. And that's really relevant because you may not know this, but behind closed doors, that gets an awful lot of attention. 
Behind closed doors, church leaders talk about that a lot. A lot of the conversations are, well, it must be all that, that like sin out there or all those philosophies that have crept into the church, and that's what's making people leave. Now, maybe that happens. I just haven't seen it. I've seen people who talk about that stuff as they leave, but that wasn't fundamentally the reason for the exit. And if that's not the reason that people walk away from church, then trying to attack that stuff is a silly strategy for keeping people at church. And we're still left with the question, why is it happening? Here's what I've observed in the last 26 years. Without exception, People I know who walked away from church left because of bad experiences with Christians in church, without exception. And I have friends who will say things like, well, I don't believe in the validity of the Bible anymore. But if you take the time to listen to the story, what has happened is an abusive and unloving Christian mistreated that person and said, I'm just doing that because the Bible tells me to do it. And so the person says, well, I guess the Bible is no longer valid. I, I don't believe it anymore. This may sound like an oversimplification, but I, I'm going to put myself out there and stand on this limb. I think the reason people leave church is church. Right? I think dysfunctional church has created far more atheists in our world than any other factor combined. Church done poorly causes crises of faith for so many people. And I think there's a lot of church leaders who would rather point the finger outward at the world out there, but at some point we have to consider that maybe we in the church have created this problem. And maybe the exodus from church that appears to be happening in our country is not related to our country, but is related to our church. And we need to consider that truth. And it's hard. It's hard to accept that maybe there's something that we're missing here. Maybe we don't have it all figured out. Maybe there's some correction that God needs to bring to us. But if we could just realize that, hey, maybe we're the cause of, of people leaving, then we'd realize the beautiful flip side of that truth, which is this. People don't generally walk away from healthy, loving, Jesus-centered churches. They don't. Healthy, loving, Jesus-centered churches where humility and grace are abundant, where people are encouraged to think for themselves, where people are seen and loved for who they are, churches where questions and ideas are not seen as dangerous, churches where human struggles and failures, no matter how complex or ugly, never put you outside the scope of God's love. Churches like that generally do not have to fear about the world stealing our people. We humans don't typically walk away from real love. So, when we ask this question, where are we going at Pope Rock? What are we doing? What's God doing here? Well, if nothing else, we're just trying to be that sort of a place. We're trying to not be that sort of place that drives people away from the faith. We are trying to be a healthy, loving, Jesus-centered church. That's what we're trying to do here. And I say that with this dose of humility. 
we are deeply broken, sinful, and dysfunctional. And so that doesn't just happen automatically, right? Like, it's not like every other church that's dysfunctional is stupid. No, like, like we tend to drift towards unhealth. And so there are some things that we have to be very intentional and very purposeful about so that God can keep gravitating us back towards being this sort of healthy, loving, Jesus-centered church. And that's what I want to talk about today. There are four ways that I think we're trying to do this that have been important in our history but are even more important in this next decade. Listen, we have a great legacy here at Pulper Rock. This has been a safe place for so many people, myself included, to explore faith and to find Jesus. But, uh, you know, we cannot stand on our laurels. That's just not how communities of faith work. We have to be intentional in the future. As society changes, as the world is coming at us in a lot of different ways, we have to be intentional about continuing to cultivate health. It's our turn now to create a healthy, loving, Jesus-centered environment. And I want to talk about four ways that we can do that, four things that need to be on the top of the list for the next decade so we can continue to do that. Let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you what they are. God, we come to you in desperate need of your help, of your leadership, of your guidance, and of your grace to save us from ourselves. God, we know we're so broken, we can be so dysfunctional, we can get it so wrong but we know that you love us and you're merciful. So have mercy on us. Continue to lead us to be a place of safety where people can find your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Four things. Uh, what, are we trying to be to, or what are we trying to do to be a healthy, loving, Jesus-centered church? This is the first one, and I will warn you, it is by far the longest. This is what happens when I don't preach for a long time. I get up here, and I just have a lot of words to get out, so bear with me. It's going to be fine. We'll do it together. So at Pulper Rock, first thing, we want to be gospel-centered, not ideology-focused. Gospel-centered, I got a whistle, not ideology-focused. That's great. Let me unpack that. The gospel The gospel is the amazing news that God is good, that he loves you, and that he will happily give up everything he has so he can have you. Jesus proves that to us. The gospel says that because of what Jesus accomplished, God is not angry with you. He's not even in a bad mood about you. He is eager to share his life with you, and he is actively restoring you in creation to everything it was created to be. The gospel further tells us we've lost ourselves which is easy to see. We've lost ourselves, and we walked away from God. But when we lost ourselves and walked away from God, that he never walked away from us, that he pursued us. And so gospel-centered Christians operate with a lot of humility about ourselves, about our own efforts, about our perspectives, about our ideas, because the gospel leads us to trust this God who loves us and to love other people who are broken just like we are. Gospel is centered in relationship. That's what it's about, the restoration of relationship. Now, I want to contrast gospel with ideology. I'm not putting these on a spectrum of good and bad. I'm just contrasting them as two different things. Gospel centered in relationship. Ideology, that just means a system of ideas, right? So there's a lot of different ideologies, and it's a system of ideas. It's how you see the world. So an ideology is a worldview. It's not a relationship. 
Ideology-focused Christians are really passionate about constructing the right set of perspectives about various things, and often they're equally passionate about identifying the wrong sets of perspectives about various things. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Please don't mishear me. Having a Christian ideology is obviously not bad. It's good. Like, it's fundamentally good to be doctrinally sound, to have a biblical worldview, to have an orthodox systematic theology. Those are things that we, are, that we should have. We should construct that. We should have opinions on how we think about the world and about what is true and what is not true. It's not bad, but we have to observe this. Most people who are struggling with Christians right now are not struggling with us because of the beauty of the gospel. Something has gotten in the way. And I want to suggest that they're struggling with the arrogant ways with which we've talked about our ideologies. There's so many churches that get overly focused on ideology and they're constantly just like picking fights and beating people over the head with, you got to think this way about this issue. And I, I care about issues, but that gets in the way of the gospel. And the way we carry our ideologies, meaning the way that we like carry them out into the world and interact with others about them, that, that, that really matters. And we really can carry them in ways that interfere with God's work in someone's life when it comes to the gospel. And so I think there's two things that we have to keep in the forefront of our mind whenever we have an ideological assertion that this thing is true and that thing is false. Here are the two things that we have to keep in the forefront of our mind. First, 100% of us are wrong, right? Like, you are wrong. I'm sorry to say that to you, but I, have, I said it to myself this morning up in my office. You're wrong, Jonathan. You're wrong about stuff. We are wrong about stuff. Now, you're not 100% wrong, but 100% of us are wrong. Like, spoiler alert. You're going to die, I'm going to die, we are going to get up to heaven, and we are going to have huge gaps in our understanding of what is true. And they're not going to be like intentional gaps. We're going to get there and we're going to say, God, I really thought it was like that. And God's going to say, well, you thought that because you are a finite human. And from your perspective, it looked like that was true. But from my perspective as God, this is actually the truth. And we're going to say, wow, that's totally the opposite of what I thought. We are going to have that experience. Listen, the Apostle Paul, he knew more than any of us in this room. Listen to what he said. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This is a guy who knew far more than us, and he's saying, listen, what I know, I realize is only a small part of it. And notice how he describes maturity. Maturity is not tied to, now I know it all, and I can go out there and fight with people about it. No, maturity is tied with the acknowledgement that what I know is just a small part. 
And one day I'll know the whole thing. And so what I want to point out is the reason that we are going to stay focused on the gospel and not obsess about ideology is because we acknowledge from the beginning that all ideology is by definition biblically incomplete. Because it's dreamt up by a human. It's not incomplete because of God. It's incomplete because of us because we don't see as clearly as we will one day. So that's why we don't pick fights over ideology and we stick to the gospel. Henry Nouwen, the great theologian, says it this way. Theological formation is the gradual and painful discovery of God's incomprehensibly, uh, incomprehensibility. It makes sense that word is hard to say. You can be competent in many things, but you cannot be competent in God. That's why we hold on to the gospel so tightly and we hold our ideologies with us so much humility because this distinction where we kind of overdo it with our ideological assertions is becoming more and more costly in our culture. We cannot be arrogant anymore in this country. We just can't. We can't afford it. We cannot have bad priorities anymore in this country. We just can't afford it. We have to keep the first things first, and we have to keep the gospel primary over all things. 100% of us are wrong. Here's the second thing. Um, Building on that, we should have a biblical ideology, but we also have to realize this. The Bible is not about ideology. It is not about ideology. It is the revelation of a person. That is what the Bible is. That is what the Bible claims to be. In fact, Jesus was talking to some people who were very focused on ideology. People who represent and I think look a lot like a lot of pastors in this country. And here's what he said. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. That is the description of a lot of churches in America, I think. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures who testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And what he's saying is, listen, you've turned the scriptures into a book about topics and ideas. But it's about a person. It's about Jesus. And you miss that fact. And listen, go to the bookshelf in my office or maybe it's the bookshelf in your home. Our bookshelves are full of books with topics, answers to the question like, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about parenting? What does the Bible say about politics? What does the Bible say about sin, about sexuality, about money? I could just go on listing all day. Those are fine questions to bring to the Bible because the Bible does say some stuff about that, but we have to be careful not to become like these religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. Because as Jesus points out, the life is in him. There is not life in understanding scriptural principles. It is helpful, it is good to do, but scriptural principles didn't die on the cross to save you. Now, I, don't get me wrong, I study the Bible relentlessly, I'm not against studying the Bible, I really think that all of us, and this is going to be, I'll get to this in a second, all of us need to be studying the Bible way more than we do, and studying it in different ways than we ever have. But because I've studied the Bible for a lot of years, I can tell you without a doubt this warning that Jesus gives is a real danger. That we can get so caught up in the study of the Bible that we miss the Jesus. 
At Pulver Rock, we believe life is in him, it is in Jesus. Life is not in a biblical worldview or sound doctrine or systematic theology. Good things, but there's only one source of life, and he is a person. And the gospel teaches us that it's Jesus. Sometimes we get so focused on ideology. Let's do a mental exercise. Imagine you go to one of your non-Christian friends, and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, I go to church. What do you think we people stand for? What do you think we're about? Can you imagine if the response to that question was not about some political issue or some social issue? Can you imagine if the response to that question was, oh yeah, church, uh, yeah, you guys are the ones who really think God is for me. You guys are the ones who are always going on and on about how much God likes me. I'm not sure about that, but it seems real important to y'all that I think God likes me. I don't know. I think if we started hearing that response echoed back from our culture, then we would be kind of close to the sort of priority that the gospel needs to have in our faith communities. So what we're going to try to do here is prioritize the gospel. And I, I, I will say this. I think we're on the way with this. I think we're, we're pressing into this together. I stand up here on Sunday and I look out, and I'm not going to point anyone out, but like I know uh, some of y'all personally, and I'm like, this person and that person, they have like deep ideological disagreements, like deep ones. Like they really don't like each other's perspective. And yet we worship together because of the gospel. That is the point. That is the dream. Like, if you want to find a place where everybody thinks like you, I promise you, and I want to, I want to tell you, it is out there. This is not that place, but that place is out there if you want to find a place where everyone thinks like you do. But why would you want that? That's how we stop growing when we surround ourselves with an echo chamber of what we already believe. What I love about this place is it's not that. And I think the American church, to be healthy, has to learn to stop beating up people about ideology and stop making that the litmus test of fellowship because it's not. The gospel is. Uh, I'm a little lost in my notes here. That was the first one. There's <laughs> three more. Um, as I said, sorry, I got a little passionate. Um, these are shorter. Um, okay, building on that, here's another thing. What are we trying to do here at Pope Rock to be healthy, loving, Jesus-centered? Well, we believe in identity-focused discipleship and spiritual formation. Uh, when it comes to spiritual growth, as I mentioned, uh, you know, we call that discipleship, spiritual formation, all that sort of stuff is synonymous in our mind. Uh, we're talking about the process by which God reshapes us and frees us to be everything we have been created to be. Pastor, I really like uh, a guy named Tim Keller. He says it this way. You want to be free, but you're not. You must live for something, and whatever it is will enslave you and lead you to exploit others. On the cross, Jesus reversed the power dynamics of the world, giving up power in service rather than exploiting. This provides an identity unlike any other, one that provides unconditional love and is not based on the ups and downs of our performance. And I love how he describes that because it connects on something deep, is that most of us, like, we really want freedom. We want to be ourselves in a way that we've never managed to be. 
But the brokenness and the sin in us is constantly leading us to things that leave us worse off and we're more confused. And the idea is that Jesus steps into that and he shows us with, by descending into death, like he, he inverts it and he says, now you have this identity that's based on what I've done for you and who I say you are. And that's something that now you can build a life upon. That's spiritual formation. He frees us to be who we really are because of his love. And that process is directly tied to us resting in what he declares about us is true. And that means by faith we trust what God says about us, that we are not condemned by God, that we've been set free from sin and death, that we don't have to earn God's favor by keeping the law because he's already fulfilled it in us, that the spirit of God lives in us and leads us that we're full sons and daughters of God, we're full heirs with Jesus, that we are saved and redeemed and justified, that God is for us, that Jesus is praying for us, and that nothing we could ever do or that anyone could ever do to us would make God love us less or turn his back on us. That's what God says about us. That's what he declares about us. And incidentally, that is Romans chapter 8. That's just a snapshot of it. We should all read it when we get home. Romans chapter 8. That's who you are. Our formation and our restoration is tied to learning to trust by faith that that actually is our identity. When I was growing up, I was taught that like spiritual growth, like my spiritual growth, my formation, uh, it was tied to spiritual disciplines obeying commands, and doctrinal understanding. And what nobody told me is I could devote myself to those three things and never grow. People do it all the time. And so I devoted myself to those three things. And it wasn't until I got here at Pulpit Rock that I understood why I was so miserable on the inside and why formation was not happening. Because I learned here at Pulper Rock that my growth is tied to accepting by faith my new identity in Christ. And if you doubt this, read the first half of every single one of Paul's epistles. We just want to continue to be an advocate for that with each other. That's what Formation Table is going to be about, that this growth and this peace that we all long for. It's not about efforting to become something that you're not. It's not about efforting to please this deeply disappointed God. It's about, in humility, receiving your true identity from Jesus. You're the beloved of God. He died so that you would know you are the beloved of God. That's the foundation of all of our growth, all of our spiritual formation. So we want to talk about it from that framework, identity-based, not duty, discipline, shame, any of those other things. That's number two. Here's number three. What are we trying to do at Pope Rock to be healthy, loving, and Jesus-centered? Well, we are really focused on joining God's kingdom work in the world. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear this. This is a real important value to us. Sometimes people ask me from time to time, hey, what's the vision of Pulpit Rock? And we don't really have like a vision statement like a lot of churches do. I always say to them, we don't have a vision, we have a kingdom because I think it's clever and it's a good way to shut down the conversation. But the real reason <laughs> uh, is because the kingdom is the subject that Jesus talked most diligently and most frequently about, the kingdom of God. He doesn't just save us, but he saves us and he involves us in his plan to restore the world. God cares deeply for this world. He is restoring all of it. 
He's at work doing that, and he invites us into it. And so the kingdom of God is simply God's vision of what the world would be under the reign of Christ. That is the kingdom of God. That's what he talked about more than any other subject. And we believe the Bible teaches us this, that it is progressively expanding, and it is crashing to earth on earth as it is in heaven. So our job as a church is not to come up with something to do. That's never been the job of church. Like our job is not to come up with a corporate vision or a 20-year strategic plan. Like, no, there already is a vision. Our job is to find what that vision is, what God is already doing in the world, and simply say, hey, do you, wanna, do you want us to help? We're not the saviors. There is a savior. He is not us. We're not the saviors. We're not the visionaries. We're not the ones with the plan to redeem this place. God is. We are the apprentices learning to participate in the work that the expert craftsman is busy producing. Now, let me give you a visual representation of this. Um, Have you seen our cross? I mean, like I realize you're looking at it right now. You've seen our cross, right? There it is, our cross. Uh, So this cross, well... Were you here the Sunday when Susie was preaching and a piece of the cross fell to the ground and went like a smack like that? Who was here for that? That was so exciting. I was sitting right over there. I told her afterwards, Susie, this means either one of two things. (laughs) (laughs) By faith, we're trusting. That was Jesus saying amen. But so, okay. So the reason a part of the cross fell is because it's made of different like pieces here, different scraps of lumber. So this lumber uh, comes from our Love Your Neighbor team. You may be familiar with this. It's a group that, among other things, they build bunk beds so that if like a foster family takes in a foster kid, uh, we believe that in God's kingdom, kids shouldn't sleep on the floor or sleep on a couch. So we show up like right away with a bunk bed and the kids get this exciting bed to sleep in. And so scraps are left over from that. And so we put it all together and we put it on this cross. Now, a small tangent, but you may know, uh, like we are a Protestant church, right? We're not Catholic. Uh, And in the Protestant church, one of the differences, well, there's a lot of differences. One of the differences is you'll notice our crosses don't have Jesus on them, whereas in the Catholic church, they have a crucifix with Jesus on them. And it's just a different emphasis. Uh, We uh, are emphasizing the risen Christ, and so it's an empty cross, and Catholics emphasize the sacrifice of Christ, and so that's why he's uh, on the cross in a crucifix. Um, But up here on this cross, we have this beautiful picture of what it means to be a church. It is a combination of the risen and triumphant Christ and his people doing tangible things to restore the world in his name. That is the vision for this church. God has a vision. He's going to do it whether we join him or not. I like to think of the the resurrection as an invitation. You show up to the tomb and it's like, oh, he's not there. It's It's like a game. Hey, I'm out there in the world. Come find me. Find the people that I spend time with. Find the things that I'm doing and join me in those. That has always been the vision that God has had for his church, and we just want to keep pressing into that, that we are restored and that we join him in restoring. Those two things go hand in hand. We can't just do one. We've got to do both together. Now, last thing, Um, and I know, like, this is getting long. (laughs) I was not going to put this one in because I feel like it should be obvious, but I'm so passionate about it. I'm like, I'm going to throw it in. I'm just going to go along. I'm sorry. I'll shorten it up from here on out. But like last thing I really want us to understand, um, what are we trying to do here at Pulper Rock to be healthy, loving, and Jesus-centered? 
We are telling the whole truth about the Bible in ways that honor what God has given us in the Scriptures. We're going to tell the whole truth about the Bible in ways that honor what God has given us in the Scriptures. What are the Scriptures? I believe the Scriptures are the inerrant, authoritative Word of God. Absolutely. But also I believe that in the American church we have to acknowledge this. Unhealthy faith communities, dysfunctional church, the kind of church that hurts people's spiritual lives, thrives on the misuse and the abuse of Scripture. Scripture's been turned into a weapon, and some of the most toxic faith communities in our country have built their brand on preaching the Word and defending the truth of the Word of God, as if somehow He needed our defense. What they're actually doing is they're defending their human interpretation of God's Word, and they're equating it with the inerrant Word of God, and they ought not do that. We're going to try really hard not to do that. We're going to try to frame the Bible truthfully. The Bible is an astounding library of books with a, a unified theme pointing at Jesus as the Christ, but the Bible does not answer every question and it does not resolve every issue. And on most biblical issues, there are intelligent, intelligent, good-hearted brothers and sisters who have studied the issue and come to different conclusions. Like, you know that, right? Whatever the theological issue you're passionate about, there is an intelligent, good-hearted, faithful brother and sister who studies the same issue, reads the same scriptures you do, and says, I think it's more like this. And the problem happens when in churches someone like me gets up here and starts teaching their position on scripture as the truth of God's word, instead of teaching it as, this is my position. So we're going to try to frame it correctly, and we're going to teach positions. We're also going to teach there are some legitimately uh, biblical other perspectives out there on a variety of issues. We're constantly learning more and more about the, uh, the Scripture and about the world in which it was written and learning more about the original languages. That gives us greater tools to understand this book. That constant uncovering of new layers of meaning and truth and clarity about the Bible, that doesn't challenge the inerrancy of Scripture. It just challenges the inerrancy of us as humans. And if we hold our theology with humility, then we're okay with that. We're okay with new information. We're okay with talking about there's some people who disagree with this. We're okay with honoring brothers and sisters who agree that Jesus is God, Jesus is human, and Jesus is the Christ fully sufficient for salvation, but I see that issue way differently than you. And that's how we're going to talk about it here. The Bible is not static. It is not handcuffs. It is not a cage. It is also not an instruction manual. It is the revelation of Jesus as the Christ, and it's the story of broken humans having a relationship with the invisible God. So when we teach it, we're going to try to show our work. We're going to talk about context. Context really matters in biblical interpretation. And we're going to interpret the scriptures as faithfully as we can. But we're also going to ask this. You've got to study it. You've got to study it along with us. What we're doing up here is not magic. 
It's not like we have some secret knowledge that you don't have. Uh, we want to equip you to study it, and you've got to study it. The Bible should never, like, like we're reformers, right? Protestants, we uh, are, are children of the Reformation. The Reformation was about giving the Bible back to people, and yet in a lot of Protestant churches, it's back up on that high shelf, and the pastor's like, listen, I know what it means. You come to me, I'll tell you. The Bible has always belonged to everyone, but we have to use it as such. We have to engage in it together, all of us, not just one of us. And there's some tension in that that we're going to have to ask you to hold. Like, here's the tension in that. With zero training whatsoever, you can sit down with your Bible and you can open it up, and through the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you can meet God and discover amazing truth. Absolutely. You don't need any training to do that. And also... We should not assume that this ancient library of 66 books written over 2,000 years ago in two dead languages by 40 different authors, that we're going to open that thing up and read everything and clearly understand it in our American mind without a little bit of work. It's complex sometimes, and there's stuff in there that we really need to faithfully study because it's tricky, and we've got to press into it and understand it. We're going to ask you to do that here. It's very important to me to all of us as a church, not just me, but that all of us must learn to faithfully study the Bible. You can do it. We'll show you how we got to do it. We're going to do some fun stuff this year in a couple weeks. I'm going to start us off. We're going to go through all of the minor prophets, uh, which is a section of the Bible that's so cool. Uh, listen, like it's, I mean, they're close to 3,000 years old, but they are as relevant today as they have ever been. And there's so much weird stuff and stuff that we're going to get to argue about and talk about, like just really cool section of the scripture. So we're going to walk through those. It's going to be really fun. But here's what's going to help us. Wherever we are in scripture, what is going to help us navigate it in ways so that we can ensure that we are not hurting people with the Bible, which is not what it's for, is this, is good scholarship and humility. Good scholarship and humility. We're going to show our work, do good scholarship, and we're going to have the humility to say that none of us gets to be the person who claims to have the unbiased knowledge about what God's word means. Right? None of us get to claim that because it's not true. We all bring our bias to it, right? So we're just going to talk about that, put it all on the table, and uh, study it with humility. Um, let me close with this. I will end this sermon mercifully. <laughs> Sorry it's so long today. Um, we're going to try to be healthy, loving, Jesus-centered at Pulver Rock, but we're going to try to do that with this understanding that we have this capacity to drift towards unhealth. So here are four things that we just need to value, we need to focus on to stay healthy. We're going to try to be gospel-focused, not ideology-focused. We're going to practice identity-focused discipleship and spiritual formation. We're going to try to join God's kingdom work in this world. We're going to try to tell the whole truth about the Bible in ways that honor what God has given us. And we hope that by God's grace, if we're intentional about some of those things and some others, that we can be a healthy, loving, Jesus-centered church where humility and grace are abundant. People are encouraged to think for themselves, their love for who they are, and they find Jesus in a safe environment. Let me close with this. You can probably tell this about me. I don't know if you can, um, but I suspect you can. Um, so I've been wounded by church. I've been wounded in the context of church. I talked to so many of you who also have that story in your background. 
Um, I also want to acknowledge this. Like, because of my role as a leader in this church, um, I, I have both been wounded in this church, and I have wounded people in this church. That's what happens. We're broken. Church is exactly what you would expect a gathering of deeply flawed, deeply broken human beings to be. And yet, it is not just us. The gracious God, full of mercy and love, is in our midst. And so while church can be a very wounding community to be a part of, it can also be very good and very beautiful. I've been wounded by church. I've been wounded by this church. I've been healed in church, in this community of faith. I've been healed by you people in a lot of ways. I love you people. I think you're really a beautiful community of faith. Um, you have a great legacy in my life. It's time for us to carry this thing forward into the next few years. I don't know the future, but I think this is true. I, I think, like, I'm pretty sure this is my last church, you know? Like, I just, I'm good. This is, this is probably it for me. Um, I don't really want to go anywhere else. Like, it's pretty imperfect everywhere. Like, like, I mean, there's like this illusion of, oh, maybe there's a better place. Um, but if there was a better place, they probably wouldn't let me in, right? You know, or you. I don't, I didn't mean to insult you. But, you know, I just, like, it's not bad. It's just, it's imperfect everywhere. And I just, I really like you imperfect people. So here's my appeal. Here's what I, I'm thinking. Let's just stick, you know? Let's just stick. The grass isn't greener. Let's just stick with this grass. Let's just stick together, and let's together somehow, by God's grace, try to build a faith community that is healthy, that is loving, that is centered on Jesus, I think that's what the world needs more of. Like, I know that is what my heart needs. I know that. And I suspect maybe yours does too. So let's stick. It takes all of us. It takes all of us. Are you interested in something like that? All right. If you're interested in something like that, would you stand with me? I just want to pray over us. God, we come to you in humility, standing before you, hoping that you'll do something here. God, it's so easy to just keep separating, unfriending, breaking relationships, moving on. God, give us the courage to just stick with each other for a little bit, to try to see if somehow in uh, our midst we could discover what it means to be a community centered on the gospel, despite our differences, despite our struggles, that we're, we're so enraptured in what you have accomplished for us, God, that it is enough to keep coming together and joining your work and discovering what you say about us. God, we realize this, that we are hopeless and we are lost. If you don't do what only you can do, this community will be dysfunctional and unhealthy. So we throw ourselves on your mercy. We ask that you'd work in us 
and we ask that you'd work through us, and we ask that you would create us to be a healthy, loving, Jesus-centered church. Amen.